When Apple launched Apple Music in late 2015, the decline in download purchases was steep and immediate. The industry soon began to bemoan the death of the download. But is that actually the case? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Today, we talk about the fate of the download in a streaming economy. Will downloads shortly go the way of the eight track? It's all coming up on the future of what? listening to The Future of What. We're talking to music business analyst Russ Krupnik. Russ, welcome back to The Future of What. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. So you wrote an article that was posted on musicwatchinc.com entitled Orderly Transition as Paid Music Streaming Escalates, No Paying Downloader Can Be Left Behind. And so we thought it'd be great to talk to you today because we're doing an episode about the death of the digital download. And I think you can probably give us some good insight into whether that's just a hyperbolic statement or if there's some truth to it. Glad to. In your article, you do mention that this death of the download is, in fact, a real thing. There's some pretty strong numbers to back up that the download is declining not only quickly, but possibly quicker than we have thought previously. Right. What triggered my thinking was actually a few months ago, I gave a conference presentation I had a fairly pessimistic forecast for what downloads would look like by the end of the decade, probably at least losing half, if not more, of the people who who buy them. But actually, the more that we start to look at numbers and contemplate how the industry is changing, (laughs) I I actually think it could be much worse than that. We're seeing, and, and we can circle back to this, In addition to what we see in the Nielsen numbers, which are showing some dramatic declines, we're showing fewer and fewer people actually listening to their download collections, and we're seeing less and less time involved in downloads. So I do have some concern that I always avoid things like the death of, being sensationalist, (laughs) the death of CDs, the death of vinyl, the death of... But I think here's one where we might have a patient in intensive care. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting in this article that you wrote that I mentioned, you talk about CDs and, you know, the CD was the last format where there was a significant decline and everyone was sort of, you know, going on about the death of the CD. But as you mentioned, there's a lot of people who still actually listen to CDs. And one reason is because it's a format that still has applications. You know, a lot of cars still have CD players, even though a lot of new computers don't have CD drives. People still have other places where they can utilize their CDs, and they're still listening to that format, which I thought was an interesting measure. It's not just buying them. It's actually listening to them, which is, I think, a pretty important distinction. Right. And I think even though we've seen a few years and and a long-term trend, a fairly dramatic trend of CD purchasing declining, certainly in the U.S. with the average age of our automobiles, 11 to 12 years old. And and frankly, even, you know, I'm blessed with a couple of relatively new cars. It's a little bit complicated hooking up your phone to your streaming, to your apps and so on. So between the age of the cars and the collections that we have and some of the complexity around streaming, a lot of people still are listening to CDs in the car. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
And it is interesting because the other ways that you can listen to music in the car, terrestrial radio, which is free, and then other, you know, internet radio, Sirius XM, these are like paid services or they're a little bit more difficult. You know, it's, it's that extra step. So that is interesting that sometimes it's a lot easier for people to just keep, you know, just push one button or push the CD in. Right. And certainly, uh, you know, my wife and I talk all the time about because, you know, we do have Sirius in the cars and we do have all of the, the cables and connections and Bluetooth and whatnot. But, you know, oftentimes if we're running <laughs> to get a quart of milk, it's just a whole lot easier to turn on news traffic sports or K-Rock or deep tracks on, on Sirius. So, yeah. and, and, and the, the reality is, I think both of us, if you press the little button, you'd find that there are CDs already loaded up in our cars as well. So, and I don't think we're, you know, I don't think, at least from the research, we're not at all atypical of people right now. Right. That will change as the technology gets better. And I think that's actually, you know, one of the risks to downloads is as the technology gets better, it becomes somewhat of a less and less relevant format. I thought the most interesting part about your piece was that you say, you know, like we just said about the CD, you know, the CD is maybe not as popular as it once was, but there's still applications for it. But as you point out in this article, downloading and streaming all happen on the same devices. And so when you have that kind of sort of head-to-head competition, people move have been moving to streaming because it's the same place that they would go to do a download, but instead they can just stream. I think you're totally right that that makes a big difference. Right, and in many ways, there's less friction. I'm actually a big fan of listening to my download collection when I fly. I, 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 I may be the last fellow who actually takes iPods with me on, <laughs> on plane, but honestly, you know, if I'm going to spend my time on my music collection, I, I'd much rather build playlists in Spotify or Tidal or Apple, you know, obviously I, I use multitude of them. I'd rather spend my time on playlists than on working up a new collection in my in my iPod. So, you know, it's kind of a fiction in where we put our effort and time into. One one thing that I noticed in your article that I thought was was really interesting was that you have access to a lot of data about not only what people are paying, but what people are doing. Mm -hmm. So you have like numbers of listeners, but you also have the time spent per week listening to the various services. So, you know, you have a certain number of people download and the number of hours a week that they listen to those downloads. Mm -hmm. And you also have statistics on how many people pay for subscriptions and, you know, how much time they spend listening. And so what you found is that the people who download are actually listening to those downloads less. Right. And that's concerning. And now the one caveat is there's always been a little bit of seasonality with downloads because people got their devices traditionally around the holidays. They got gift cards around the holidays. There were big releases around the holidays. And then, you know, it all drifted in. In January, they would go and, and redeem all of their gift cards and so on. So I think there's some seasonality that we see in the numbers, but I think the longer term trend, we're not seeing the same decline in the same degree of decline in CD listening this year, for example. So I I think it is a little bit endemic to what's happening in the download market. Hmm. And then you also mentioned that only about one in three paid downloaders also pay for a subscription. Yeah. So that's an interesting statistic. What do you make of that? 
Well, it it depends on whether you're a glass half full or half half empty kind of person. <laughs> and, and you know, the, the half the half empty part is, gee, wouldn't it be great if everybody who buys music also were was transitioning to a subscription? And so a third of them are, and two thirds of them are not. On the other hand, if if you're a, an optimist. This year, we're going to wind up with about 10% of the internet population being self-paid music subscribers, so one in 10. If you're a digital downloader, that's one in three. So the, you know, the, the conclusion is if you're a downloader, you're much more likely to have already made the leap into paying for a subscription, which is a great thing. I think the challenge is how do we get that from... If if we do if the industry is going to lose a lot of these downloaders, how do we get it from one third up to one half or or three quarters? And you know you talk about that a little bit at the end of the article that we need to you know and this is something a lot of people have said. I remember years and years ago Benji Rogers from Pledge Music said this to me, and I've always thought it was true words of wisdom. He said you have to give the option to pay as much as somebody wants to pay for music. You have to put the options out there. You can't restrict options for people because there's so many people who like to pay at different levels. And I think that's kind of what you're saying at the end of this article. It's like, yes, the rise in in subscriptions to streaming is great, but we still have to make downloading appealing to those people who would prefer to buy it that way. I think it's a combination of things. I think we are as buyers, and this has been happening for years throughout the digital age, we do become more and more selective over time. So you know, we may decide to spend 99 cents or 9.99 on the digital album if it's a Taylor Swift or a Bruno Mars or an Adele, and we may just not the things that we used to buy to fill out our collection. We might just stream. So that's the selectivity. On the other hand, when I go to iTunes, I see really exciting things every single week. Things with bonus tracks, things with special pricing. And I have to say, as a buyer, I'm not being promoted to enough. I'm not getting a. I should be getting a notification every week that says, "Hey, download buyer in the store this week is this product or that artist or that song." So I I think there are some steps that could be made to hopefully slow the decline in some of the things that we're seeing. You're not going to turn the trajectory, but to slow it. And the other thing I, I I would just encourage is considering that the companies who are who have sold at most downloads also have subscription services you really have to be aggressive about reminding download buyers who've not made the transition yet reminding them that there are great streaming services out there that are very economical now they come in different pricing tiers so there's there's no excuse for people who used to buy music not to have something in the paid subscription realm that appeals to them. Right. And I think we are seeing that slowly happen. I mean, that's the conversion that everyone's hoping for. You know, my understanding of the numbers is that we are, in fact, seeing that. Yes, but I will say, I'll give you again as a consumer, when my serious subscription lapsed, it was a, a new vehicle subscription, after three months it lapsed, I heard from them all of the time with price offers, with reminders, by letter, by, by snail mail, and by email. Mm-hmm. I've yet to get an invitation from Amazon to try one of their streaming services. Mm, interesting. And I'm an Amazon customer, and admittedly uh, not a Prime customer, but I'm an, a regular Amazon shopper. Right. So I think that there's a lot, 
you know, as an observer, I think there's an awful lot more that we can do to market, especially to people who've been in the download arena the past few years. Right. And they, you know, they should put some marketing dollars behind those efforts. It's interesting. You know, I find I find that interesting because, you know, Amazon is a massive company. I wonder how seriously they take their music. You know, do they really care so much if they have lots of subscribers to their music service or not? Maybe that's what you get when you see no advertising from them. You know, maybe no marketing dollars shows how much they care about that aspect of their business. I don't know. Well, you know, I'll go back to what I, I think is partially the Amazon concept of of having us as same with Apple, it's having us as part of the, the broader ecosystem. You know, if you're using Prime Video, if you're using the Prime service, if you're using Prime Music, you'll probably buy more Echo devices. Amazon's own research seems to seems to show you're going to spend more on the store and maybe spend some on groceries. So if we look at overall ARPU or overall value of a customer, I would say that any lever, whether or not it's a you know a profit-making endeavor, any lever should be used to, to raise the overall value of the business. Well, Russ Krupnik is the managing partner of Music Watch, Inc. Russ, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Thank you for having me.
That was The Crippled Jazzer by Marnie Stern. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Andrew Jervis of Bandcamp. Andrew, welcome to The Future of What? Hi, Portia. How are you doing? Great. I'm glad to have you on. So today, we are talking sort of hyperbolically about the death of the download, and we thought we would talk to you because Bandcamp is still a place where people can go to purchase downloads, and often do, to my firsthand knowledge. And I wanted to ask you what kind of changes you've seen in people's downloading behavior over the last couple of years. Well, I can tell you that for sure, digital sales as in sales of digital albums on Bandcamp were up 14% last year. And I think industry-wide, they were down 3%. So people are definitely still buying digital. You should know, though, that vinyl was up 40%, (laughs) and even CDs were up 10%. And I think cassettes, if I'm right, was up some incredible percent. So in general, things were on the uptrend. Right. I think what's different about Bandcamp is, though, that we don't really consider ourselves the download store. What do you consider yourselves? Explain. <laughs> Explain. So if you're an artist or a label, you make your music available on Bandcamp, you set the price at the price that you'd like to receive, and obviously you can have that little or pay more box checked. And as a fan, you can come along and you pay the price that you know that the artist or the label has asked. And what you get for that purchase, obviously you can buy an LP or a seven-inch CD or a cassette if you want to. But you also get a digital copy of the record. And what we're offering there is access, meaning that if you want a high-res file or an MP3, you can go ahead and download those if you want. But anywhere you have Bandcamp, you can now stream that album. So if you have it on your phone, on your desktop, or your iPad, or whatever, wherever you have Bandcamp, you may now stream that record your heart's content because you paid the fee that the artist or label wanted and that money went directly to them. So I think that's the difference there is that we're offering access in any way that the fam wants, hopefully in a sustainable manner to the artist and the label on the receiving end. And when did you guys start the streaming service? I suppose it's always been there. Mm. If you think about it, it's just gotten more and more prevalent as more and more people are using the app and they're able to walk around with it in their pocket. Interesting. We spoke for this show to Russ Krupnik from Music Watch, and he was saying that one of the interesting things about downloads and streaming is that because they occur on the same platform, they are becoming, you know, it's like this potential for downloads to go away entirely is possibly stronger because you're using the music on the same device. You you know, you can either stream or download and listen to a download on the same device. And it's a little bit different than, for example, a CD, where that's just a completely separate physical thing that you have to, you know, put into your car or whatever. And I, I think that that is true because I certainly have seen from iTunes sales when they instituted Apple Music in 2015, that download purchases plummeted, but streams went way up. So it was it was almost a zero-sum game in a lot of ways. But at the same time, downloads didn't go away entirely. And I'm sure you guys are seeing that still. Yeah, I mean, I think what we think is that, that streaming services are great for casual listening. But Bandcamp's there when you want to be a bit more engaged. And whether that means, you know, 
you want to buy an album and have it in the format that you have, or you're talking directly to the artists or are able to discover more and kind of connect with other fans of those bands, that again, there's something slightly different going on. You know, Ethan, who founded Bandcamp, gave a great talk up in, in Portland at XOXO a couple of years ago. And I think one of the points he made was that I can't imagine, you know, in a few years' time, sharing with my kids, hey, here's that great streaming playlist I made of, you know, <laughs> Chill Out Music 2013. <laughs> you know, it's there's just not as good. And digital's obviously not going away. And if you amass a record collection with quotes around it, it's either physical or, you know, made up of albums, then that seems slightly more tangible and slightly more in line with the type of fans that are using Bandcamp, maybe. Um, it, that's not meant as a slant against any of the other services. I think it's just a different way of, of approaching it. One is maybe more engaged and the other is more casual. I think Bandcamp has done a great job of succeeding in having the reputation in the industry for being extremely artist-friendly. And I think the population of people who go to Bandcamp to buy are people who know that they're really supporting the artist, which I think drives itself. You know, it, it's a self-sustaining group of consumers because they want to help the artist. And I think they feel like they're really doing that with Bandcamp. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of a lot more clear where the dough is going. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the fact that you can leave messages and I think there's just that little bit of extra interconnectivity there that helps make all of that clear. Right. And also having just every option. You know, you can get everything on Bandcamp. You can get a digital download. You can stream it while you're yeah. waiting. <laughs> you can yeah. buy an exactly. LP. Yeah. I mean, for better or worse, we still live in this era of I want everything now. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so even if you buy the LP, and you wait for those two weeks or however long it is, you know, for your piece of vinyl to show up, you can at least then go ahead and, and listen to your record digitally. Exactly. So hopefully that's the best of both worlds. Do you guys have any statistics on the number of people who download? Or is that just not a statistic you keep? We don't really keep track of, like, how many downloads versus streaming and that kind of stuff. No. Because we do our downloads through Bandcamp. And that's been an interesting thing to look at for, for our label, how many people. Because if everybody gets a download code... So they can go and redeem, you know, when they buy a piece of vinyl, Yeah, how many people are actually doing it and what the percentage is. And I think that's really, it really varies a lot, you know, certainly from release to release. But it is an interesting statistic. Yeah. Yeah. It may be one of the reasons we don't keep it because I think it does kind of vary release per release. And gosh, sometimes I think, you know, we're so driven by numbers, especially, you know, thanks to social media, how many likes does something have and all you know, I think at the end of the day, if the fan can get what they want and can get it in the way that they want and in the timely manner that they want, and you on the other end as the artist or label can call it a business, then great. <laughs> and, you know, whether they're streaming or downloading it, cool, as long as it makes sense to everyone. And I think that's a, that's a bigger picture, right, is to date, there are not that many people that can claim digital downloads are over, streaming is the future. And I know this because Streaming businesses A, B, C, and D are profitable because we can't really actually say that yet. And, and I, I'm guessing that there are not that many labels and artists who can say, hey, yeah, it's profitable for me too. It's a business for me too. So until we get there, I don't think you can say it's dead along with all the other formats and ways that we like to enjoy music. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think right now 
is probably not the best time in the music industry for anybody to declare any format to be dead because we need all the formats we can get. We need all the income streams we can get. Gosh, you know, if I could tell you, this, if anyone out there can tell us the future, they'd obviously be a very rich person. But so far, the music industry has proved that that's not entirely possible. (laughs) That's the understatement of the century. Where is that employee, Portia? Where are they? (laughs) I know, I know. Well, on that note, Andrew Jervis is the chief curator for Bandcamp. Andrew, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What? Hey, Portia, keep up the good work, and, and thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure.
That was Helen by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Ken Shipley from Numero Group. Ken, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks for having me, Portia. So today we are talking about the death of the digital download. Dun, dun, dun. And I wanted to talk to you because we noticed that recently Numero Group has stopped putting those download code cards into your vinyl releases. And we, of course, at Kill Rockstars, we got really excited about that because I was like, oh, does that mean we can stop too? Oh, boy, oh, boy. Tell us all about that. <laughs> a lot of it stems from me looking at a budget report from 2015 and just looking at where we were spending money and what we could trim. And I noticed this line where we'd spent nearly $15,000 on download codes. And I was like, God, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So I had somebody over here run an analysis on digital download codes. I just wanted to see how effective they were. So they ran them on 15 different releases released throughout the last three years just so that we could get kind of a healthy cross-section of new and, and catalog titles that had maybe been sitting out there for a little while, just to see where we're at. And mm-hmm. what we came back with was an average of about 4.6% of the cards were actually being redeemed. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. When I started looking at those numbers, I started thinking, I was like, well, you know, if people are actually not going to use these things, then there's really no point in us putting them in there. It's, there's, you know, there's a hardcore you know, user who's deciding that, that they really want these things. I'd almost rather them and then email us about wanting a download than, than actually going through and, and providing it you know, beforehand because the amount of time that we'll spend super serving this hardcore customer is probably a lot less than $15,000 a year. Definitely. Yeah. And I I agree. I mean, I think we probably have maybe three complaints a year from people who are upset because their download code didn't work or, you know, they they want that digital download. But I mean, it's that's tiny compared to the, you know, if you think about the thousands of records we sell. Yeah, it's, you know, when you when you really start to stack it up and you look at the numbers, I think if every label went and said how many of these were actually being redeemed, how much of this is is valuable, how much of this is really just a customer service issue, I think the entire industry would would abandon them. And I'm, you know, I I've always thought that we were snarkily of leaders of the business, zigging when people are expecting us to zag. And I had no problem really throwing off the shackles of the download because we got a lot of grief for it. Mm-hmm. But we also got a lot of people being like, yeah, these are stupid. This is a total waste. This is just junk inside of the record. There's, you know, nobody's using them. It's funny because as much hate that we got, we got so many labels called and we're like, God, this is amazing. We can't do it yet, obviously, because... We care what people think. And we're, we're sort of in the mindset. It's just like, look, people are going to buy records regardless. If it doesn't have download code and that's what's stopping them, that's a, that's a really minor concern if, you know, of ours. Like that, that, if that represents 4.5% of our sales, I'm sort of willing to sacrifice those temporarily to get people up to speed on what they should be doing, which is buying an album and then streaming. There's, there's just no reason why you need an iPod filled with songs anymore. Nobody needs 15,000 songs when you go out of town. You can sync on your phone to Spotify 3,333 songs and take them with you anywhere. If that's not enough enough songs to take with you anywhere, you should maybe consider your listening habits and what you're doing. <laughs> because, you know, like how long are you really going? Where are you going that you don't have access to an internet connection? Because you can update it and you can change it. And you know, So it's those types of things that I'd really like to just 
commu- you know, I, I don't think they're being communicated enough to the consumer that, you know, hey, there, there's so many different options for you, but you to be able to listen. And streaming is a way better option. It helps the label. It helps the artist. It helps, you know, the, the songwriter. Everybody in, in, in the food chain sort of then gets a spoonful, whereas the digital download, you actually get nothing out of it. It's like Numero is paying for you to download this music and paying $15,000 a year so that people can have convenience. You know, it's just, it's not, it's not an equitable position in the marketplace anymore. Right. And it also seems like it's not serving the majority of your customers either. You know, it's not something that everyone's taking advantage of. So why would you continue to do it? I mean, it makes sense to me. Yeah, I I just I think that the entire business is going to shift and go this way. We might be a little ahead of the shark, Uh but that's okay. And, you know, I'm willing to like I said, I'm willing to sacrifice in the short term. Yeah. For what I think is a is is a much better gain. Because if, if, for instance, we were still throwing download codes in for the next three years and it cost us, let's say, 50 grand to do that, that would be a complete waste of $50,000. Well, because the marketplace is shifting to streaming, as you said. You know, you either embrace the future or you get left behind. And, Absolutely. You know, we're, we've committed to streaming as a, a massive piece of our revenue going into the next probably five to, to eight years until something replaces that. And it's just... We, we can no longer like retreat down market into like these minority niches that that don't ultimately serve the, the greater good of the of the label and its artists. Right. And if we look at the major players in the marketplace, you know, Apple made a real strong commitment to streaming last summer when they started Apple Music. And that was a pretty good indicator for us labels, you know, that they were very serious about it because they're the number one purveyors of downloads pretty much. Yeah, and and, and what I think that everybody is seeing on their statements is just how streaming was already cannibalizing downloads two years before. Right. And we we were all just playing catch up and and getting our heads around what what funny enough was was sort of a download gravy train. You know, when you go back and you start thinking about the price wars when people are saying like ninety nine cents versus the dollar twenty nine, and it's just like that those days are done. People downloading music are, are like wedding DJs at this point. And, you know, there's, there's no future there. Right. And it's fine. You know, that's the thing. It's like, we don't, nobody needs to own files. Like, you're not, there's, there isn't anything in a file that is worth owning. Metadata is not sexy. And, and so just getting the consumer to sort of take that and run with it and change their listening habits is, is really like the next challenge for, for record labels. And one of the things that I'm a massive proponent of is just getting everything up streaming. There should be no reason why your entire catalog is not available to stream. You're, you're costing yourself money because people are not going to say, man, I can't listen to this song, so I'm not going to listen to anything. They're just going to listen to something else and it's going to cost you money. And anybody who's sitting on the sidelines waiting for it to change is costing themselves money every day. What's your philosophy about partial album uploads? Like, so let's say there's 12 songs on a record and six of them are online streaming. But the idea being, you know, if you want the other six, you have to actually purchase the album, not necessarily just stream it. I, I just think that you're, you're leaving money on the table. And, and, you just, and it, here's the thing is, I think artists and labels have to decide what they think is best for them. And if they think that they can survive on a six-song stream versus a 12-song stream, that's great. But... You know, what, what I, I think what we're battling for is attention right now. Mm-hmm. And whether it's video games or HBO or just other music, if your music is not available to stream, people will listen to something else. And so whether it's six songs or 12 songs, 
it doesn't really matter because when the six songs are over, I doubt that they're just going to listen to the same six songs again. And, and that, that's, the, that's the moment when you have the time to kind of capture the casual listener's imagination and hold them. If you can hold them for 12 songs, God, that's, that's, a, that's a miracle. Because for the most part, you know, when, you, when we all look at our streaming reports and we're seeing that it's like one or two songs on a record are really capturing people's imaginations, and by the time you get down to track 12, it doesn't really matter because the, the streams obviously kind of like <laughs> they, they, they have a downward trajectory. You know, it, it's more important, I think, now than ever to get as much as you can from the listener and to super serve them because these people who are streaming as, you know, 95 to 100% of their, of their total listening experience, like we need to convert them as fans. And the more we keep away from them, the less we can engage them. Well, I have, I have a million questions for you. So let me ask you this. There's a statistic floating around out there that 90% of the music that's on Spotify is not listened to because the vast majority of listens come from playlisted songs. So what do you think about that? I think it's really kind of a fascinating stat that has less to do with playlisting and a lot more to do with the fact that there is so much music being uploaded every day from places like TuneCore and CD Baby that nobody wants to listen to other than maybe somebody's mom and their mom's not on Spotify anyways. And so, so a lot of music is just being uploaded to nothing. And I think if you're a quality record label or a quality artist that you're, you have an audience and maybe you only have some songs that are streaming a thousand times a month or something like that. Maybe you have songs that are only streaming a hundred times a month, but a hundred is obviously a lot better than what we've heard as a, a 90% unlistened to music. I don't really buy that stat. I would love to see you know, about the, the data behind it where we're seeing like, here's what's being streamed versus here's what's not being streamed. And I, I don't really believe that there's been a report that's been passed around that shows that many artists not being streamed because I'll say this, every single song in our catalog is streamed at least 30 times a month. You know, we have songs that stream a million times a month. So I feel like for that to play out, we'd have to see only 10% of our songs really be streaming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And granted, you know, we really embrace the format, which certainly helps. But, you know, if, if you're a label or an artist and only 10% of your catalog is streaming, that's a marketing issue more than anything. Interesting.
That was Cool Yourself by Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Ken Shipley from Numero Group. And then here's another question about sort of pertaining to what you just said. Do you feel like there are two separate populations of music listeners at this point? There are music listeners who purchase and stream and then people who just stream? Or I think there's probably three, really, is because there's people who are resistant to streaming. There's people who are just purchasing. And, and those people, I think, are just becoming a, a smaller and smaller portion. I think there's a massive population of people who are just streaming. And, and I'm really excited about it because I look at the planet and I see three and a half billion people on this planet, I'd say, who would want to stream music. And Spotify has about 100 million of them. That's a really, really small portion of the population. And so there's so much upside in front of us if we can convert, you know, let's say even let's get to a billion people on the planet with a streaming account. I guess I'm not really that worried about the non-streamers versus the streamer plus buyers plus, you know, plus anything, because like for us, selling a record is really just marketing a copyright and marketing the ability to tell a story about a song in hopes that it gets played a lot of times. We, we take for granted the fact that when a song gets streamed 5 million times, that's actually kind of a decent amount of money for one song to get out there. And even a million times is a decent amount of money. Is it what we would have made selling a million singles? Absolutely not. But the difference is that it was impossible to sell a million anything at, a, at, a, at an indie level before. You know, now we're reaching, you know, whether it's, 250,000 people listening to it four times or 500,000 people listening to it twice, you're reaching such a massive audience of people that, you know, it, it's really, I, I just, I'm so inspired by the idea of how much music is out there and how much, how easy it is to access and what the future can hold once we get a significant portion of listeners signed up. Yeah. And it's nice. I'm glad you mentioned indie, the indie level, because that's sort of, you know, while you're talking, it's making me think about how being an indie label, one of the nicest parts of being an indie label is that we have the ability to change quickly and just say, listen, this is how things are going. We're going to do it differently now. We're not beholden to, you know, massive corporations. We don't have boards of stockholders that we have to, you know, make earnings for every quarter or whatever. So it's kind of nice. We can just say, listen, this is how the future is. Well, what I think is most fascinating, too, is that the, the indies are actually lagging behind here, which is ridiculous. Because when I look at a, you know, a company like, Warner, like the Warner Music Group, you know, they're saying that, that they're, they're looking at, at 50% of their revenue this year coming in from streaming, possibly higher. That means that they've bitten off wholeheartedly into, into something that, that indies are, you know, like are really just trying to figure out how to dip their toes into still. And granted, they have an ownership stake, which, you know, we, and, and they're getting topsified and filtered and, and you know, and, and basically owning the, the Spotify branded playlist. But the fact that they bit off so hard into that world and, have, and, and are really leading is just completely surprising to me because it seems like the indies before were always the ones who were like, no, we're going to make a change. You know, when with MP3s that the majors held out for ages and then, you know, finally, finally relented when it was almost kind of too late. And, and I feel like, you know, there's so many indies are sort of holding on to the past of what it can be like embracing vinyl when vinyl is, is a bandaid and, and not really the future of the business. You know, I have a conversation with somebody at a major label and they're like, the only reason that we're doing vinyl is because it's a great way to market this product. 
Right. You know, it's like having a poster on the wall. Right. And, you know, they're looking at this as, you know, like if it breaks even fantastic because they're making all their money really on streaming. Right. Yeah. And I mean, as you said, it's it's a very different business model. They had interest in the company and Spotify when it came to America. You know, they had a different set of advantages. But also, I think it's what you said about the numbers, because, you know, indies, we, we've been dealing with such small numbers comparatively over history that, you know, they have not. They've been looking at numbers. That's what they do. You know, they have these massive research departments that figure out what's trending where and and they're used to dealing with millions of copies and i think that that makes sense you know they could look at the numbers and say this is going to do really well for us i'm actually not surprised i mean when you when you look at like you know like drake which has got i don't know 800 million plays or something like that on there and it's, you know you it's 800 let's say, let's say it's 800 million times a 7000 like there's a kind of a chance for that record to be more successful as a streaming product than as a physical product. Absolutely. And, you know, it has zero distribution cost, really. It has no inventory cost <laughs> to you. And, and it has so much upside to it that, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm not surprised that the majors have pushed so far into streaming because it, it actually has, it, it's going to be so much more profitable in the end. And they're sitting on these massive catalogs that once we reach a billion people streaming, it's going to be an ATM. Mm-hmm. It's going to be an ATM. And like you're, like you're just gonna turn. You're, you're gonna decide when you want money, and then you're gonna turn it on <laughs> and take the money. And like that, that, that moment is so exciting to me. And like that's why we're really building a streaming infrastructure right now, because I want to be there before our competition is there. Because when I look around at a lot of the other reissue labels in the market, they're lagging so far behind. And I would say even a lot of indies that I look at. You know, we follow tons of indies on Spotify just to see what they're doing. And it's just like for every Domino who's absolutely killing it probably has the best you know sub beggars indie profile on spotify I, I i look at like so many of their peers and i'm like what do you guys do like how are you not looking at what they're doing and saying we need to copy that to a t you know because like you get a song on their their indie playlist their best of indie playlist I mean, you're guaranteeing yourself probably hundred thousand plays. Wow. And like, it's, it's just like the numbers are just so in your favor when you build the infrastructure and there's just too many people who are like very, very carefully deciding when they're going to wade in. And I I think it's to their detriment. Interesting. Because when you look at, you know, and, and granted Domino had this huge advantage. They were one of the first labels when Spotify came to America that Spotify came to, and there's a very specific reason which you can Google and find out about, I won't name names of why they had such an, such an incredible advantage. But the fact that they took advantage of that and decided to build so early, they're blowing everybody else out of the water. And that's how I looked at it now. You know, it's like five years later, if I would have been, five, you know, if, if I could have gone back to myself five years ago, and been like, look, Spotify's coming to America. You should, you know, get in on the ground floor right now, get your stuff up, start building playlists, start, you know, getting on their playlists. I, I mean, I, I'd slap myself a million times just to be able to, to go back five years. And now I'm looking at the last year that we've had or year and a half that we've had in front of our competition and they're still not doing it. And it's just like, they're going to be where we are in three years and they're going to be kicking themselves that they weren't already doing it. <laughs> and on that note, Ken Shipley is the co-founder of Numero Group. Ken, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Thanks for having me, Portia. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Marnie Stern, Horse Feathers, Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, 
check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Can I have a taste of your ice?